Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. This morning we're beginning our new series on the book of John, and this is part of what we feel the Lord's been leading us to do as a church in this season, which is to teach through books of Gerenable, um, really as, once again, anchoring ourselves in the foundation of Scripture, and especially the life of Jesus. I think that's doubly important as we go through a season of transition, to make our feet firmly planted in Scripture. And so uh, our beginning point in that is looking at the good news of Jesus in the book of John. And as we study John, we're not only going to be teaching through major sections of the book uh, in order, um, but we're also going to be reading through the entire text of the book together. Now, when you're studying a book, it's, um, it's always good practice to actually read the book that you're studying. <laughs> Unless, of course, there is a film adaptation. <laughs> right? And while I wish we could play you the whole you know, season of The Chosen, uh, we're going to read it together. And so... As we do, I want you to bear this in mind. The point of the series is not just that we would be familiar with what's in the book. Uh, it's not just that we would grasp the book's message or even know how to apply its principles to our lives, but the point of the book is that we would encounter Jesus. And if we miss that, we've missed the point. All right, so these words are his breath, and he promises that if we diligently seek him through his word, that we will find him. He will meet us. All right, so let's encounter him through his word by reading John chapters 1 and 2. All right, it's going to be a long reading, but then we're going to focus in on uh, a smaller section of that. And this is how we're going to uh, go through this series together. All right, so let's read. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the, made, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt full of us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this is the testimony of John. 
When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did, not, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they'd been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptized. The next day he took Jesus, he, next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon's, uh, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than this. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending and ascending on the son of man. Now we begin our focus passage for today, which is chapter, um, in chapter 2. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. 
Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it out. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So here ends the reading of God's word. So let's get into this. Whenever we study a book, the first questions you should ask are, what kind of book is this? And what's it about? So the kind of book makes a massive difference to how you read it. You don't read your car manual in the same way you read a book of poetry. So John 21, 24 says, this book is John's testimony in which he's bearing witness to what he has seen. And so, if you wanted to put a genre to this book, you could call it historical biography, written by an eyewitness. John 20, 30 and 31, tells us the purpose of the book also. All right, this is what it says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so that's the, the title of our series, That You May Believe. And so we can, we can sum uh, this up in our first point, that John, as a book, it's eyewitness testimony to Jesus' identity and significance. And so you have to bear that in mind and read it in that way, because otherwise, you're going to misread it. So we're teaching this series on the book of John. Now, when, you, when you teach a series on a, on a book the length of John, you can't possibly go through every single verse and every chapter. Um, but what we're going to do is actually hone in on a unique feature of John's gospel that when you read it, it seems to function as this kind of 
central literary device that he uses to reveal who Jesus is and what he means. And so it's by the use of two things that consistently repeat through the book. Um, and it's this. Number one, in John, Jesus doesn't just perform miracles. He performs signs. And that word has come up over and over again in what we read, right? Secondly, in John, Jesus doesn't just teach or, or describe who he is. He uses this, this very emphatic phrase over and over again, which is, I am. And of course, that's the name of God that's revealed in the book of Exodus, and so it's very meaningful. And so you have those two things, signs and these I am statements. And so that's the, the framework that we're going to be using um, to, to study through this book um, over the course of uh, 14 weeks, roughly. And that's going to take us all the way through Easter. All right, so we read chapter 1, we get John's famous prologue about the divine word becoming flesh. We, we preach a lot about that at Christmas time. Um, and uh, we're introduced to John the Baptist, um, who is also a witness that points to Jesus. Um, Jesus calls his first disciples. But then it comes time for Jesus to begin his public ministry, and he does it by means of a sign. So what does John mean by a sign? Well, the word he uses is semeon, which is, um, it's, it's, if, you, if anyone studied language at all, it's the word we get our word semiotics from. It's your study of how signs and symbols create meaning. All right, so here's the cliff notes. Next point, signs create meaning by pointing to objects within a context. Okay, so on the way over here, um, you would have passed many signs, all right? So maybe you passed a sign that said Makunji. That sign was not itself Makunji. Yeah? You're with me on that? It points to a geographical location, which is itself Makunji, okay? Now, the only reason you can understand that is within the context of the English language, all right? If those letters were written in, you know, Arabic script, most of us would probably not understand what they mean. All right? Now, take another example that doesn't depend on uh, English. So take a traffic light. Okay? Um, a traffic light uh, is a sign that means something, but only within a specific cultural context. All right? So in England, uh, red means stop. Green means you better slow down just in case. All right? In Allentown, red means, uh, sorry, yeah, green means go. Red means you can still make it, <laughs> right? In southern Italy, uh, green means go, and red means absolutely nothing. <laughs> so <laughs> you have the signs that, that point to something or tell you to do something, but they only make sense within a certain context, cultural or linguistic, okay? And so John says that his whole book is about signs that point to reality, and they should be interpreted within a certain context. So what is the context that John wants us to interpret what he's writing through? And it's this. John's sign makes sense only in the context of Scripture. All right? If you read it outside of that context, you're going to miss his point. All right, so we know the signs, we know the object, we know the context. Well, what is the meaning that he is trying to create through the use of these signs? And this is our next point. 
And we're back to John's purpose statement. The meaning of John's sign is that you can have true life in Jesus. That's the entire point of his book, right? That's the prism through which he wants you to read everything that he writes, right? So why am I saying all this? Well, we're going to be looking a lot at the signs that that John highlights through this book, and um, this is what we have to bear in mind as we do that. This is the central point of everything that John includes in his narrative. It's, it's, it's the reason that he selects what he does, the words that he uses, the stories that he relates. And so as you're studying it, sometimes you run up against things where it's like, what is he talking about there? Well, you won't go far wrong if you begin with this framework, all right? And so a way you, you can form that as a question to get to the root of what John is, is saying, and this is how you'd ask the question. When you're studying John, here's what you should ask. How does this passage point to true life in Jesus, because that's his point, all right? Okay, so now we're ready to turn to what John says is the first sign that Jesus performed, turning the water into wine, and this is an episode that you only find in the book of John, and so we want to ask, how does this passage point to true life in Jesus, all right? So, when you first encounter this story, um, it, it kind of seems like, you know, this is Jesus' party trick, <laughs> right? I, you know, he probably got a lot more wedding invites after this. <laughs> you have to look at it within the proper context to understand the meaning, right? So when John says that this is the first sign that he, cre- that, that he did, this, it's the word arche, you can also translate it, it's the primary sign sign. And so in, in a sense, uh, this first sign is the course for all the rest of what Jesus does. This is the inauguration of his ministry. You know, uh, Tim Keller uses the, the illustration of if you were running for political office, God forbid, <laughs> uh, if you're running for political office, you know, if you're smart, you put a lot of thought into every aspect of how you're going to announce your campaign to the public, Right? from what you wear, to what you say, to the, the setting of where you make that announcement. All of those things help shape the first impression that people will then, you know, use to interpret what you do. And so, this is not just a casual thing that Jesus begins his ministry in this way. But you have to ask, why in the world does Jesus choose this as the first act that's going to announce um, himself to the world? What is it about this that reveals something essential about who he is and what he's come to do? All right? So before we go any further, we have to understand that in the context of a highly communal, um, uh, ancient society where family ties are the most important thing and it's it's a shame and honor um, culture, uh, and there's very strict rules of hospitality. Remember uh, when in Genesis, when uh, the angel judged him to Lot's house, and, he, and he's inhospitable to them? Remember what the judgment was for that? You know, it, it, it communicates how important the idea of hospitality was. And so running out of wine in the middle of a wedding, it wasn't just a social faux pas. This was the kind of thing that would follow your family, you know, tarnish your family forever, Right? And so you also have to uh, remember 
weddings at this time would, would typically last about a week. So you did need a lot of, you needed a lot of wine. Uh, <laughs> um, so Jesus kind of, he, he, he prevents this terrible shame from coming on the groom and the, and the master of the feast. Um, so when we're looking at what does this all mean, at the very least, when you look at the cultural context, um, this sign points to the fact that Jesus provides for our needs. He covers our shame. Uh, uh, you can also say he, he's affirming the institution of marriage. He's affirming the practice of celebration. He also seems to be affirming good taste in wine. Now, these are no small things, <laughs> but we've got to remember, it's, it's more than just the cultural frame that we need to look through. We need to look through the scriptural frame, all right? And once you look at it through the lens of scripture, this picture is all the richer, all right? So, Let's ask again, why turn water into wine, speaking scripturally? What does wine symbolize in scripture? Well, you read through the Old Testament, uh, there's, there's a consistent warning against the abuse of wine and strong drink, uh, which was undiluted wine. Um, but at the same time, there's this, this constant um, celebration of wine in moderation as a gift. Right? So Psalm 104.15 says that God gave wine to gladden the hearts of men. Yeah, I think of Psalm 23 where the Lord prepares a banquet for his, his sheep and he, uh, he makes my cup run over. Right? It's a symbol of joyful abundance. Um, but in the context of what John is writing, there's an even more important scriptural reference. Right? And it's... Uh, it's, it's referring to Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. Because remember, John is writing to persuade us that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Okay? So this is what Isaiah 25 says. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food of marrow, of, of, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, do you hear the ring of John the Baptist's words there? Behold, the Lamb of God, right? And then you see Jesus at this wedding feast, and he becomes Lord of the feast, providing well-aged wine to his people. And so this is a prophecy of the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. And so John is, is saying... This is a sign that the messianic age is upon us. It started. And Jesus kicks it off with a party. And what does it say that he chooses this to kick it all off? You know what that's saying? It's saying that more than anything else, this is his primary sign, more than anything else, more than forgiveness, more than judgment or healing, or justice, or to anything else that Jesus said he came to do, 
more than anything else, Jesus says, I'm here to bring joy. I am here to bring joy. I am the true master of the feast. Jesus came to get the party started. (laughs) And so John tells us that he fills up um, six stone jars holding up to 30 gallons each. That's up to 180 gallons of wine. Now, I worked this out. That's roughly 900 bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine. I mean, how big was this this wedding, right? (laughs) I mean, it lasts a week, but I don't think Cana was a particularly big place. This This is, you know, I read this actually as a picture of the superabundance of God's joy. That it's far more than enough. It never runs out. Presumably, they were already partway through the wedding, right? So this is, to me, this is, this is the symbol of just this absolute generosity of God's joy. And Isaiah says, this is a joy that signals the end of evil. Right? This is an eschatological joy. Death is no followed up in victorious joy. He will swallow up the veil of sadness that's over the earth. No more tears, no more reproach. Now only rejoicing because, and I like Spurgeon, uh, Spurgeon's phrase here, he says, there is better wine to come. There is better wine to come. If you don't like wine, you know, take it up with John. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But this is why Jesus came, and he says this in other places, that our joy may be complete, right? So I want to ask you, how important is your joy in the Lord? How important is your joy in the Lord? How important to you is experiencing and living in that superabundant joy of God. But Ian, you don't know what I'm going through, right? You don't know my personality. I'm just not a real joyful person. And maybe that's all true. <laughs> what I do know is that there's good news here for you. And we're going to be preaching good news this whole time because if we're not, we're not preaching the gospel of John, right? Which means good news. So good news will be in every one of these messages. Um, So I don't know what you might be going through right now, what you might be carrying in as a burden into this place right now, but this is good news to you. Because it's saying, whatever you're going through, the point is, he is the good news of true joy. He is the good news of true joy. Whatever you're facing or going through, Jesus has reserved a joy for you that nothing can take away. That's a joy that you can cling to. Because Jesus, well, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but if Jesus is at your party, the joy is never running out. If Jesus is at your party, the wine will never run out. Okay, now if that's true, and it is, and Jesus knows it, then we have to ask, 
Why is it that he reacts so sternly to his mother, right? And you read that, and it's kind of like, whoa, Jesus, take it easy, man. <laughs> like, you know? Now, I have to say, in the, in the original language, it, it's, it's, it doesn't come across as disrespectfully as it does in English. You know, I wouldn't say that to my mom, all right? Um, but it, it, so it's not disrespectful in, 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 you know, the cultural way of speaking, but it is disapproving. You know, he is, he is kind of lightly rebuking her. So why is that, all right? Why is he so serious in the midst of declaring himself the Lord of the party? And the hint that we have is that he refers to his hour. My hour has not yet come. And, and this is, John is masterful literature. This is, this is what we call literary foreshadowing, okay? Because we, as we read the rest of John, we know that his hour refers to his death on the cross, all right? And so, still, you got to ask, why in the world is Jesus, you know, in the midst of this wedding celebration, why is his going to the cross on his mind? Why is he even thinking about that? It doesn't seem to follow, right? And um, one of the commentators says, you know, (laughs) when you think of single people when they go to a wedding, right, a lot of times you'll see single people at a wedding, they're just kind of like looking off into the distance, you know? Why? Because, you know, if they desire to be married, a lot of times they're thinking of the day when I might get married, right? And so you might think Jesus has that same thing, but Jesus knows in order for him to have his bride, he's got to go to the cross, right? Jesus knows that the path to our joy is only through his suffering. And he knows that as soon as he begins to reveal his identity, he's begun that road to the cross. And so John specifically tells us that these jars were the water jars used for the um, Jewish rites of purification. All right? Now, it was interesting to me, scholars point out, this is actually the the exact amount of water that you would need to fill a uh, uh, purification immersion pool. And so the water in these jars, it, it, it's a picture of the law. The law of God that was designed to awaken us to our sin, to emphasize the great distance between us and a holy God. And so Jesus tells the servants to fill up the water of the law, and they obey, right? And they don't only obey, they, they go all out. It says they fill them to the brim, Right? In other words, they go as far as human effort would allow. And part of the human condition, I think, just is that we go around life constantly with this mindset, oh, if I could just do this, if I could just get this, if I could just be with this person, if I could just achieve this, then I'll have the joy that I'm really looking for, right? Now, most of us never reach, you know, the, the, the pinnacles of success and wealth and fame and, and all that stuff. Um, so we think that we're just, you know, if, if only we had that, we would get it, right? We're just missing out. But the thing is, some people do reach those pinnacles. And consistently, it's, it's, quite, it's quite sad when you read 
um, the, the autobiographies and you read people's stories of the people who do reach the highest heights of all human endeavors, they will consistently tell you what we're looking for is still not there. That joy is still not there. Or not for long, anyway. The servants went as far as they could with what was humanly possible. So they could have poured out that water, filled up the, you know, the purification tank, and, and washed themselves absolutely clean. But there was no way. They could, they could have done all of that. There was no way that that would have led to their joy. Right? When you're in the middle of a wedding, no amount of water will make up for the lack of wine. Right? It might be, you know, the finest Voss, you know, whatever, Fiji water. It, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> when you have a wine shortage, no amount of water will do the trick. But John is saying the true life that we desire is in Jesus. Because he does what the waters of the law could never do. He provides his blood, which cleanses us in such an overly abundant way that we can actually be full of the joy that he made us to enjoy. We were, you know, the reason we desire that joy, the reason everyone goes around wanting that joy, it's, it's not misplaced. It's, well, the, the objects that we put it on are misplaced, but we feel that because we're created for it. And so Jesus replaces the waters of the law with the wine of his blood. And yes, he will bring us joy and laughter. That is his purpose. That is his ultimate purpose in everything that he does. But our joy will be at the cost of his blood. And in the context of the cross, the wine is his blood. And it becomes a sign of God's mercy. And so the next point here, the second point is that the, um, Jesus is true life because he is the good news of abundant mercy. And so there's a third and final point here, which is that John says this first sign manifested his glory, right? And so what does that tell us? It tells us that you can see the sign and yet not perceive the glory, right? The servants perceived the sign. Only the disciples perceived the glory. And we have to remember, back to our study of semiotics, you could only interpret the sign if you are within the right context, right? There's certain truths that you can only get from the inside, all right? So, for instance, everyone's heard of, you know, great works of literature and art. You know, you've probably heard of the, the book Don Quixote, all right? Great, it's, it's the, first, you can, the first novel ever, all right? Incredible work of art. You cannot get the meaning, you can't perceive the glory of that art if you are not within if you're not immersed in the Spanish language, you won't get anything out of it. 
right? Um, you can only understand uh, and appreciate the beauty, the genius of great works of art when you give yourself to the discipline of them. And in the same way, if you want to see the glory of Jesus, if you want the mercy that will lead to your true joy, the joy that you're actually looking for, the only way is to give yourself to him. The only ones who both saw the sign and perceived the glory are the ones that had already decided to follow him. And so the point here is that he is the good news of ultimate glory. In the first chapter of John, we're given that staggering promise. He says, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become sons of God. Then in Romans 8.30, it says that every son of God is destined to be glorified. So again, however you came into this building today, if you're, however you're feeling about yourself or your life or your situation or even about God, if you are a son of God, if you're a daughter of God, he has destined you to be glorified. That is your ultimate destiny. So why is that good news? Well, I think no one has said it better than my old friend, Clive Staples Lewis. In The Weight of Glory, he says this. He says, in the end, that face which is the delight or the terror of the universe, much must be turned upon each. Either one, uh, sorry, it must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. And so as the musicians come back up and we, we finish with, a, with a, a, a song together, this is the good news to you this morning. Jesus is the good news to you this morning. And this sign, his first sign, shows us that he's come to give you the joy that you so desperately crave. He's come to give you the mercy you so desperately need. And he's come to give you the glory reserved for his sons. And I just want you to notice for that sign to take place, there were a couple things. That there, there was a human participation. Did you catch that? What happened for that sign to take place? First of all, there was a petition, right? And second of all, there was obedience, right? The servants did what he said. 
He kind of could have, you know, clicked his fingers and boom, wine. He kind of did that with the, uh, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. It was a little bit more like that. And there was some human participation there too. But um, Jesus could have done it differently. Why does he do it like this? Because Jesus is, is a good parent. And he knows we cannot be transformed unless we ask for it ourselves, unless we want it ourselves, and we're committed to do what he says is best for us. That is how we come to know him and see his glory. So I want to ask you, what are you facing today? I want to ask you, is Jesus at the party? (laughs) Or, if you're more honest, are you just trying to have the best time you can until he comes back? You know, if you're facing a lack, if you're facing a uh, uh, shortcoming in yourself or in your circumstances, it's good because it's an opportunity for you to ask him to intervene. And then it's an opportunity for you to do what he tells you to do. And it, you know, it's not easy, but it is very simple. We ask, he speaks, we do what he says. And as we do that, as we, 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 we put ourselves in that context, that is how we come to see more and more of his glory. If you can do that, you can learn to walk with him in that, you're going to grow ever more in his joy. You're going to grow ever more in his mercy. And your life becomes a sign of his life and joy and goodness and mercy and love. And so, Father God, we, we thank you for this good news of Jesus. We thank you for this, this eyewitness testimony that we have in this beautiful book of John. And we ask you that you'd open our hearts and minds as we study through this, as we, as we um, uh, follow through this as a community. The, the youth will also be going through the book of John. Uh, so there's this, this partnership there. Um, Father, we ask you that you would transform our lives more and more to become signs of you. That our lives would point to you. Lord, and that as that happens and as people notice it, you give us an opportunity to bring them into an understanding of what that means. So Jesus, thank you that you are the good news of our true joy. Thank you that you're the good news of a mercy by which we can come into the family of God and that as we do, you're the good news that we are destined to be glorified in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.